Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. As usual, I am joined by Avi Cooper and Tony Brew. Hello, hello. Good to see you, Hannah. And today we are also joined by our first guest, Dr. Stephen Shen. Stephen, the three of us know you in some different ways, but can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. First of all, I'm thrilled to be here, honored to be your first guest. So I am a dermatologist and an internist. I work at Mass General. Uh, I actually attend on both dermatology and internal medicine still, but the focus of my research and my clinical work is complex medical dermatology and oncodermatology, where I basically support cancer patients with skin disease. But I also love medical education. And I started doing some tutorials on Twitter, and that's how I got reconnected with Tony. Um, But actually, I think Tony was one of my first ever chief residents, was my attending for a grand total of one day when I was an intern. The best day of your uh, intern year. (laughs) Best day ever. I remember everything I learned in intern year came from that one day. Oh, good answer. Um, Good answer. Love it. That's how I got invited, guys. (laughs) Um, And then uh, Avi, we were co-residents. And then Hannah, I was your attending last year, which is crazy. I feel like I've come full circle. We have the full spectrum. Full spectrum. So excited. All right. So what are we talking about today, Stephen? So I was challenged by Tony to think of a question that was appropriate for this podcast. And I realized that's something that I've thought a lot about, and I thought I might have some answers to, but spoiler alert, I might not, is why some rashes tend to be acral. And so I thought we could spend some time talking about that. So if it's okay, I thought we would, I could kick us off and just start by saying, what do we mean by acral? What does acral exactly mean? Any thoughts? Uh, I think you taught us this when we were onwards together, but I cannot quite uh, a crawl, as it were. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something I would ask you on wards. I apologize. Um, <laughs> oh, let's let's make Tony or Avi answer. What do you guys think? What does acral mean? So I'm just going to go on the record. Um, I don't approve of uh, a derm quiz podcast. Uh, I didn't sign up it's too for this. late. It's too yeah, late, exactly. Tony. <laughs> you invited me. So. Yeah. We, we've been we've been talking for well, yeah, one minute in, and I'm already getting uh, questioned about uh, dermatologic uh, terminology. Uh, but um, if I know anything, I I feel like uh, acral has something to do with the palms and soles. How am I doing? That's great. That's perfect. I think palms and soles is a great first step to describing what acral means. Um, So actually, I used to think it was palms and soles as well. It wasn't until derm residency that I learned that the term acral actually is a little bit more than that. So acral, just think of as your distal extremities. So think about your whole hand, the dorsal, the dorsal side and the palmar side and your whole foot, the dorsal side and the plantar side. And then in addition to that, your ears, we also consider an acral surface as well. So now that we've got some of that annoying derm trivia out of the way, let's get to the meat of the question. So what kind of rashes do you guys think of when we think of an acral rash? So I guess the main thing that comes to mind for me, especially on like the palms and soles, would be secondary syphilis. Totally. I totally agree. I mean, I think I that's my like gut reaction, especially from medical school. It was always rash on the palms, send an RPR. That was always like the thing that it was like the... Uh, the knee-jerk thing that we were taught to do. I also think about other things that tend to be acral that I usually think about when I when I see a consult from a medicine team. It's secondary syphilis, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, maybe erythema multiforme or Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Um, but 
So this is going to be a super short episode because I can give you the answer, which is that I don't know why they're April. I don't think we really have a great reason. So done and done. Okay. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious <laughs> Clinicians. Thank you for joining <laughs> So let's, I promise I'll be curious. Let's work through this a little bit. So I think there's a lot of conjecture about why rashes are acral. And Tony and I have actually talked about this before. And I think, Tony, you reminded me once that it was in a tutorial somewhere, but that maybe temperature plays a role. Do you mind filling me in or filling us in on how temperature might play a role on acral predilections for rashes? Yeah, and, and you used the word conjecture, I think, earlier. And if you didn't, I'm going to yeah. use it right now. Um, <laughs> Because when I had thought about uh, trypanema pallidum and the and, you know secondary syphilis rash and and the fact that it appears on the palms and soles, I had assumed that it had something to do with the fact that trypanema is a notoriously cold tolerant organism. It, meaning, it, and in fact, probably the reverse is better. It hates the heat, and so I said, "Oh, okay. If it's an organism that hates the heat, it probably goes to the coldest part of the bodies. That would be the hands and the feet." But that, again, I would say would be conjecture. Yeah, but I think it totally makes sense. I think it's a logical answer to why secondary syphilis might have a predilection for the acral surfaces. So I really wanted to run with that. And I looked and looked and tried to find a convincing kind of piece of evidence, some type of primary literature, and I kind of came up empty. I'll share in a little bit some of the stuff that I did find. But I think one thing that I would suggest and try to push back a little bit on the dogma that we've all learned is that secondary syphilis, although may present acrally, really starts on the flanks and the shoulders first as this papulosquamous, which just means bumpy with scale, non-paritic eruption, and then afterwards starts to spread to other places, including the acral surfaces. But along with the acral surfaces, it also comes with all these other cutaneous findings like alopecia of the scalp that we describe as quote-unquote moth-eaten. There's these things called split pea papules that happen by the oral commissures, which basically looks like a papule with a little line on top of it. Or this other thing called the necklace of Venus, which are hypopigmented macules, mainly around the neck, which is obviously why it's called a necklace. But then the palms and soles are involved in that eventual spread of this rash. And the palms and soles usually we think of as copper pennies. So these kind of brown, hyperpigmented, flat-topped papules that appear. Um, but again, it's just kind of a part of the eventual dissemination of that eruption. Can I just reflect that those were poetic descriptions of? <laughs> I, I, I wish I could say that skin manifestations. <laughs> I wish I could say that I came up with those terms, but I think this is one of those where, um, even though I'm, I, I don't think that eponyms and those types of names are the most helpful when we're learning dermatology or medicine in general. Some of these are helpful just because if I if I remember necklace of Venus, at least I'm thinking about okay. Around the neck is where I'm going to find that. And so some of these are helpful in that in that type of context. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like, I think I find at least that I only find the rashes that I'm specifically looking for and know how to describe, um, honestly. And I'm often, I think when I think about syphilis, like, because I had that connection with, like, just the palmar surface, like, I don't know that unless it were super obvious I would have an under otherwise the language and the the know-how necessarily. Yeah. I, and so I think that's really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And if I can kind of take a step back here and kind of think more broadly about the field of dermatology, I think that's one of the hardest things about the field is that in order to build the differential, you have to know what, ha what could possibly go on the differential. 
And unless you know all the different minutiae and different atypical presentations of all these common rashes, it's hard to build a very thorough kind of list of possibilities. And so it's really just exposure and talking about it and seeing pictures and seeing patients and always being curious so that when you see a rash, you really think about what could be there as opposed to the just throw steroids on it, which I know works often, but doesn't get to the root of what might be happening there. So I think I'll pause there and just say that that's one of my first takeaway points about thinking back to syphilis. One of my first takeaway points is that it's not necessarily an acral rash only. It's actually a rash that affects much of the body. It's just that there might be a slight acral predilection compared to other types of rashes that we're used to seeing. And that actually fits with the cases that I've seen over the last 5-10 years where if they have a palmar rash in the setting of their secondary syphilis, it tips us off. But I feel like they invariably have it on the torso too, it just it, if, if, if my memory serves me correctly. Yeah, that's perfect. I, I, I agree. I, I don't think I've ever seen a secondary syphilis rash that was palms and soles only. It's always palms and soles in addition to something else. Um, and we're taught in dermatology anything that's papulosquamous, bumpy and scaly could be secondary syphilis. And it like we really shouldn't put money on just because we really shouldn't put any money on the fact that if there's no palm and sole involvement, that it can't be secondary syphilis. So just another example of how distribution is helpful, but it's certainly not the end all when it comes to building our differential. So in addition to secondary syphilis, I think another great example of this idea of a generalized eruption that happens to also occur on the palms and soles more frequently would be erythema multiforme and Stevens-Johnson syndrome. You see lesions everywhere, but the acral sites just happen to be more involved when compared with other eruptions. And that's interesting. So, you know, why does that happen? Like, what is it about the acral skin that's different that might lead to to some of these differences? You know, we're we're okay with conjecture on the curious clinicians um, as long as there's a reasonable hypothesis. Totally. Thanks, Alex. Well, it so, can be slightly you know, unreasonable. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've got a lot of those too. Preferably <laughs> with like a hundred to hundred million here, year history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. The farther back, the more eons you can go back, the better. Exactly. Great. Well, there's a there's an article from Nijim from 2000 BC. No, I'm kidding. All right. So... <laughs> Um, so I do think that that gets to the root of the question, right? So what is it that's different about acral sites compared to the rest of the skin on the body that might lead to these differences in presentation? So we've talked a little bit about temperature, and I do think temperature plays a massive role in certain eruptions like perniosis and Raynaud's. Like that makes sense because it is a very much a temperature-driven process. But let's think a little bit more like what's different about the skin on your palms and soles uh, compared to, let's say, your abdomen. So it's definitely feels different. I love that you're actively touching your palm right now, Hannah. That, <laughs> that, that really, I love it, even though no one can see it. Yeah. yeah, so it feels different. And so if we were to look under the microscope, you might actually see some differences there. So one of the first things is the thickness of the layers of the skin are different in relation to, let's say, abdominal skin or back skin. So first of all, the epidermis, the most superficial layer is super compact and very, very thick. And the other thing is that the palmar skin, as you might be able to tell just from palpating your own palm, has a lot less subcutis, a lot less of that subcutaneous fat. What else? Uh, I don't have uh, hairy palms. 
<laughs> Thank you for sharing, Tony. Well, sorry, so, <laughs> <laughs> let me let me generalize. I have yet to meet someone who has hairy palms, and so I will I will go as so far as to say that generally speaking, people don't have hairy palms, and hair does not grow on the palms or soles. For that matter, like fair conjecture. Yeah, I, exactly. Sorry, well, yeah. <laughs> right. So the fancy term that we could use is something called glabrous skin. So glabrous, all it means is just smooth. There's no hair growth, but that's the type of skin that we have on our palms and soles. And then one more kind of, um, one thing I like to think about as a thought exercise, let's say you get really nervous or um, really anxious. What happens to your palms and soles when you go into like a sympathetic overdrive? Sweaty and clammy. Right. So sweaty, clammy. And that's really because there's an overrepresentation of eccrine glands on the palms and soles. And these are your major sweat glands in your body. These are the ones that really help regulate temperature. And there are a ton more on your palms and soles than on, say, your abdomen or even on your back. So, so there's eccrine sweat glands, but how do these differ th from the apocrine glands? Those are also sweat glands. Is that right? Yes, thank you for thank you for the reminder. We should clarify. So, apocrine glands are the ones that are also involved in sweating, but they're attached to a hair follicle. So they're associated with that appendageal hair follicle structure. And so that's typically in your armpits, for example. The eccrine glands, if it helps, so apocrine in the sweat um apocrine in the armpits and then the eccrine, the other term for them are miracrine glands. Uh the miracrine miracrine sweat glands. Okay, so summarizing the palms and soles are glabrous, meaning hairless, which we have just learned. Yes. They have a different type of texture of skin. So they have this like thick epidermis and then not a lot of subcutaneous tissue. And they have a bunch of eccrine sweat glands, which are our kind of non-hair follicle attached sweat glands that are all over. Perfect. That was like a so, mid-tutorial recap. I love it. Okay. So wait, but bring us back to rashes from tweet one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, thank exactly. you. Everyone's palms are sweaty because we're getting a derm quiz, but where's like, so let's get back to the rash. <laughs> Practically thank an Eminem song in here. Uh, <laughs> poor, everyone's right now feeling sorry for Hannah for being my intern <laughs> last year right now. So, um, so glad you asked. Let's talk yeah, about rashes. Fun. Yeah. So, um, so this is a great example about how this difference in distribution of glandular structures or eccrine glands actually can change the predilection for certain rashes. So there's this particular rash that I think is a great example of this. It's called hand foot syndrome. And as you or as many of your listeners may recall, this is actually an eruption that happens primarily on the palms and soles that happens with certain chemotherapeutic agents. A lot of chemotherapeutic agents have been implicated by cytarabine is that classic trigger. And after a dose of cytarabine, you get really red palms, soles that are very painful. They can blister when it's very severe. And the reason for that is because cytarabine is actually excreted into the eccrine glands. And so that higher concentration of chemo of cytarabine into the eccrine glands in the palms and soles lends them to being affected preferentially. That's so cool and makes so much sense. And I'm now going to remember both hand foot syndrome and where the eccrine glands are because of that association. So thank you. I love it. I, I love that. Uh, hope, yes, that there's a whole other syndrome that's very similar that I'm not going to bring up because I don't want to ruin it. But yes, that sounds great. Now, given the knowledge that um, we now have that cytarabine is excreted through the eccrine glands in hand foot syndrome leading to the rash, how might we treat it? So I would say there's two options. 
uh, stop the cytarabine, or this is a Durham episode, so lather some topical steroids on the rash. How about have, fair, how, how am I doing? Fair point. I, it's got to be the I answer. Never, <laughs> I will never fault you for topical steroids. That's fair, um, unless it's fungal. But we'll we'll get back to that some other time. Now, but to be honest, topical steroids probably would decrease inflammation in this area. But I think this is where the treatment matching the pathophysiology of the skin condition is so cool. So, cytarabine excreted into the eccrine glands, leading to the hand foot syndrome. However. What something that we do do for our patients is we actually just have them hold ice packs when they're getting their infusions of cytarabine. And the reason, as you might have kind of guessed at this point, is that that causes vasoconstriction and that causes lower delivery of that chemotherapeutic into the palms and soles and so lower excretion into the eccrine glands. And then that is actually a beautiful way to demonstrate how the pathophys can affect the treatment and how we don't always need topical steroids. That is awesome. That was definitely the third thing I was going to say, but you you sort of cut yes. me off, and so I didn't have an opportunity to say that. But that is just so cool. I'm actually curious do you do you do this? I mean, you you or do you recommend this to the oncology teams that you sort of work with? Because it sounds like you do a lot of oncoderm. Is is this like common yeah. practice that patients getting cytarabine mm-hmm. will actually hold ice packs? Yeah. So absolutely, it's something we recommend. It's actually well-known enough now that oncologists generally will kind of actually know that trick before they're even referred to us. And so when we're called for this, um, often they've already tried the ice pack trick. We might think about other things to do. And then the other big reason for referral or for consultation for dermatology is to make sure that that's all it is, that it's not another type of eruption on the palms and soles. So let's talk about something else that's kind of in the oncodermatology space, acute cutaneous GVHD, graft-versus-host disease. Have you guys seen this before? I have not. I have, and we were really unsure if it was that or like a, I don't know, drug eruption or a viral exanthem. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, that is the differential because viral exanthem, drug eruption, GVHD, they all present the same way, which is a morbilliform eruption, which is just the fancy dermatologic way to say measles-like. So if you break it down, three to four millimeter erythematous papules that coalesce into plaques. And it could be any of those three things. And if you think about someone who's just had a stem cell transplant, GVHD is on the differential. They just recently started, most likely, trimethoprim sulfa, acyclovir, fluconazole, so drug rash is also on the differential. And then on top of that, if you think about viral status, like your donor could be CMV positive and your recipient could be CMV negative, so viral exanthem is also on the differential. So it's really hard to differentiate those types of rashes. But this is where distribution actually helps a lot. So GVHD tends to start acrely. It tends to start palms and soles. And then unlike a drug eruption that starts on the torso and moves outwards, GVHD starts distally and then moves inwards towards the torso. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you guys now can figure out why that might happen. Is it the eccrine glands? Yes. Perfect. Look at that spaced repetition. All right. So (laughs) the classic finding on pathology for a a cutaneous graft-versus-host disease is that that inflammatory infiltrate of the graft is actually in the eccrine glands or what we call the acrosyringium, which is just the like coily bits of the eccrine glands down in the dermis. So that's a natural kind of pathologic correlation to what we're seeing clinically. These are fascinating. And I could talk about sweat glands all day, um, but I'm curious if you have any other examples that don't involve the eccrine glands that sort of can clue us into, you know, acral rashes. 
Yeah, for sure. So I do think that eccrine glands and anatomical structures and the microscopic structures are the easiest way for us to think about why there's differences between acral and non-acral skin. Because things get a little bit murkier when we walk towards more temperature or other things that might cause it. Now, before we even get to temperature, I think we need to acknowledge that there are just certain things that are going to happen more frequently on the acral surfaces because we use our hands for certain things, right? So everyone now, because of the pandemic and hand washing, like we all have a higher chance of contact dermatitis, a hand dermatitis. Dentists in particular are at high risk for something called herpetic whitlow, HSV on the fingers. And uh, that's obviously usually distal because of where their hands are and what they're doing for work. But then when it comes to other certain infectious things in, on the acral surfaces, it's a little bit harder to have a very clear answer. But we do know that it happens. Yeah, I mean, it's like in the name, right? Like hand, foot, and I guess there's mouth in there too. Hand, foot, and mouth. <laughs> syndrome, you know, uh, it's literally in the name, right? Yeah. Let's talk about eccrine glands in the mouth. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. All right. So, but, but you're right though, right? Like viral processes, viral processes are classic for, for acral distribution. So for example, parvovirus B19, um, I know we like all learned about slap cheeks and like what we usually think about back in med school, but it actually causes something called a purpuric gloves and sock syndrome. And that's an acrally distributed purpuric eruption. So I actually found an article that describes that there's these different strains of porcine parvovirus that preferentially replicate at different temperatures. But other than that, there's really nothing convincing in human models to show that temperature truly makes a difference in these viral exanthems. And then there's kind of the more meta question of what's actually happening in the skin with a viral exanthem. Like you have virus everywhere in your body. So does the rash being on your acral surfaces actually mean you have more virus there? Or is it just a sequela of a systemic viral infection? So I think there's a lot of questions that could be asked, but unfortunately nothing definitive, at least that I could find in the literature. So that's that's interesting about the you know potential viral causes of acral rashes, but have you seen anything or have anything related to bacterial causes? Yeah. So let's think a little bit more about the syphilis example. So Tony, like you said, syphilis is kind of a, a classically known to be a good replicator at lower temperatures. And there's definitely um, some papers that really show that between 33 and 35 degrees Celsius, like it really replicates much better than at 37 degrees Celsius. So maybe we can use that to explain why acral surfaces are more likely involved. But then what's interesting is that I also looked at other spirochetes. So if you look at Borrelia, for example, in Lyme disease, we see that they also replicate better at lower temperatures, 33 to 35 degrees Celsius. Yet when we have disseminated Lyme, which, you know, I think of as the equivalent, or not equivalent, but the corollary to secondary syphilis, we don't see an acral predilection. So I think that unfortunately, while it's easy to find any paper to support what you want to, what you want to kind of prove and say, I think here it's still a little bit questionable as to whether it's truly a temperature story. So, you know, it sounds like we don't have a lot of answers, but, you know, the anatomical differences and some of the kind of pathological structures in the skin that may account for at least some of these differences. Like I said before, for me, it's going to help me remember that stuff, which is great. Um, and definitely it makes more sense than when the episode started. Is there anything else that you'd want to bring up as potential reasons why there may be an acral predilection for, for certain conditions? Yeah, 
Absolutely. I, I mean, I think that common things being common, I think we also have to think a lot about what else our hands are being exposed to. So UV damage is a classic example of something that is constantly occurring on the dorsal hands. So if you see pink, scaly changes on the back of the hands, that may just be actinic damage or sun damage over time. Um, so I think while we think about acral eruptions, we just can't forget about the simple things that could be causing those. Well, I feel like now I will be thinking about the simple things and also the uh, pathophysiological things even deeper. This has been so much fun. Um, do you want to share any take-home points with us? Do you have any? Thanks for asking. I always have take-home <laughs> points for you. Um, so <laughs> I think first off, what I would say is just remember what acral means, that it's not necessarily palms and soles, but it's actually distal extremities, the entire hand, the entire foot, and even the ears. And then the other thing I would emphasize is that acral distribution can help differentiate separate different rashes with similar morphologies otherwise. And I think graft-versus-host disease is a great example where um, even though the overall eruption, the primary lesion might look the same, the way it starts and the direction that it moves is really helpful for differentiating between the different items on your differential. And then finally, I think many of the findings might be related to different microscopic anatomical differences. I don't think it's necessarily important to know what the exact differences are, but I do think the take-home point here is that if you know the pathophysiologic mechanism, it's kind of cool because then you can tailor your treatment towards it, like the ice packs for cytarabine example. I am so excited to tell patients about that. <laughs> All right. This is so cool. Well, yeah. And I now this actually wraps <laughs> up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you as always for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with BCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, you can visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Curious Clinicians.